I'm so excited about being here. There's nothing I enjoy doing more than speaking to men. Um, we need it. <laughs> and usually I'm speaking to myself tonight especially, and uh, I look forward to this message that I have for you. It started in a place called Utopia, Texas, a little town of about 200 people, no stoplights. It's got one cafe, Lost Maples Cafe. My family and I had been going down there for years. My wife's family had a ranch there about five miles out of Utopia. Utopia's in the middle of nowhere, so I say our ranch is five miles out of nowhere. And so I went into this cafe one day, and of course there's no golf course within 60 miles of this place, and I love to play golf. And so for years I go down there and have nothing to do but hang out at the ranch and do stuff there, which I really love. That's great, but I do like golf, and I, I've been there so much, it's kind of nice to have a place to hit balls where there wasn't any place within 60 miles there. One day I walked into the cafe there, and as I was paying on the bulletin board where everybody thumbtacks their little cards, this is like the marketing program for Utopia, right in the middle was a half a page uh, piece of notebook paper, handwritten note that said, um, Utopia Driving Range, <laughs> one mile south of town, Waresville, next to the Waresville Cemetery, come find your game. I thought that was intriguing. I'm in Utopia now, and there's a place that I can actually go hit some golf balls. So I head out there. I've been to the cemetery before many times. It's beautiful, amazing uh, uh, cemetery. It looks like you're in Scotland with this rock wall around it and beautiful oak trees inside of it. And about 10 feet outside of it, just outside of it, there were three pieces of astroturf that really weren't big enough to stand on and hit a golf ball. So you kind of put your ball on there and stood in the caliche and the weeds. There was a metal pole with a wooden top on it, and there was a, it was a welded slit in the middle of it, and under it was an index card that had been taped with scotch tape, and the rain had kind of gotten there and run it, so you have to read it real well. It says, small bucket, $3, large bucket, $5, put your money in the slot. So this was actually the pro shop and the golf pro all in one right here. And then uh, at the bottom, there was these buckets of balls. One was supposed to be bigger than the other, but you really couldn't tell... The plastic was cracked and broken, and the balls were kind of hanging and falling out, if you call them balls. And the balls, I had little girls in, and it looked like these big pieces of chalk that they would, they would write with on the, on the uh, carport. And uh, they had no dimples and no markings, pretty, pretty much. They were culled from some West Texas driving range, brought to Utopia and called the A-ball. So I put three bucks in there, got these balls, walked over to the mat, threw the balls on the mat. My feet were hanging off the edge, so I just decided I was just going to stand there and hit. And of course, none of these balls are going to go very well. But uh, I hit a few and looked like dying quail in the air as they're flying around. I'm going, these poor people in town have no clue that it's not just how bad they are, but it's the golf ball as well. And finally, I caught one that was good on the sweet spot. And I realized at that moment, it didn't matter that I was at Utopia, the worst driving range in the history of the world, and not Pebble Beach or Pine Valley, that really the addiction of golf and life really is finding a sweet spot. It's finding the sweet spot, the feel, the sensation of that. And as I did it, I heard the Lord say, this is a place, write the book. I'm 45 years old. I hadn't written anything at that point. I'd been praying a few weeks after a retreat I'd done with some men, and we each took a piece of 70-year-old seed and planted it in a field and prayed over it. And the Lord that night spoke to me and said, I've called you to write. I didn't know what it was going to be or whatever. And so when I heard this voice, I knew, okay. So I looked around. There's a cemetery, this pathetic driving range. There's a barbed wire fence about 50 yards out in front of you going left to right. And on the other side, there were three pieces of 
you know, a, a markers there. One said 150, one said 200, one said 250, as if any ball was going to get to the 150 marker. And again, the paint had been there and the rain had made it drip. So it was just ugly and they were kind of leaning to the side and it was a plowed cow pasture. This was the Utopia driving range. One day, the guy that made it came by and his name was Wayne and he stopped and said, hey, Sonny, how you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. Is this your place? He said, yes, sir. And uh, I said, uh, I said, what, what caused you to, to make a, dr- a driving range out here? He said, what's your name? I said, David. He goes, well, Sonny, let me tell you something. This is hilarious. I mean, you guys from Texas all understand this. He says, uh, I'm an old goat rancher. And my goat farm went belly up. And I had to do something with my land. So I made myself a little driving range. We're going to make a little nine-holer around that. This literally was a goat ranch. That's what we say about bad golf courses in Texas. They're goat ranches. This was a goat ranch, but it was a failed goat ranch. So it was worse than everything. So I went back out five miles out of nowhere to our ranch and there's an 1875 little ranch house and I sat on the front porch and I got the extension cord and went out there and there's this old card table that was looked like a horse's back sitting there from like the 1940s. I put my computer on there and kind of got it balanced, put my hands. I'm looking out over the hills of Utopia and I'm thinking, this is not the way an English teacher says to write a book. I had no idea if it was fiction, nonfiction. I had no outline. I had nothing but the Lord's voice to me. And I put my hands on the computer, and this is what came out. This is what I'm going to talk about tonight. The first line of the book, first line of the movie is, how can a game have such an effect on a man's soul? I wrote that down. I looked at it. How can a game have such an effect on a man's soul. And I took a deep breath, and then my hands didn't stop for about eight hours. And it was all about that, and it ended up being sort of a fiction based on characters that I had worked with and people had mentored me and me mentoring others. It's just all mixed up. But fiction, you can do whatever you want. But it was pretty much real. And what I want to talk to you about tonight is this idea of validation, Validation. How do you validate yourself as a man, as a husband, as a, a man of God? Validation. I was in Utopia a few years later after I'd written this book, and I get a phone call. And it's from a guy in New Jersey. And we're about to make the movie there, so I'm kind of busy, you know. And um, he calls and says, hey, we read your book last year at this retreat we have up here in New Jersey. And some guy said, hey, why don't we have the author come up this year and speak? So I said, I mean, so he said, so I'm just calling you to see if you might be available this year to come speak in New Jersey <laughs> to a men's group. The only thing I know about New Jersey is like you're not supposed to get salsa from there, right? That's, remember that commercial? And I'd been from D.C. to New York going through New Jersey, and it's the biggest dumps in the world. The train goes through it, and then you disappear under the, under the, uh, under the ocean about, you know, where all the seagulls and the trash and everything is. You don't see anything good about New Jersey. That was my picture of New Jersey. And I wasn't real excited about this. And I said, well, you know, we're working on getting a movie done and I'm a little busy. So I, I don't think I can probably do that this year. And he says, okay. He says, well, if you ever want to, just give me a call back. Here's my number. And, and we'd love to have you at Pine Valley. <laughs> and I said, I didn't say I was busy, did I? I, my calendar is wide open. What, when, where, and what, what are you talking about? And so for you all that don't know, Pine Valley's perennially the number one golf course in the world. They actually rank golf courses. 
There's 18 Rembrandts there. Every hole is as good as any hole you've ever seen anywhere in the world, and they're all put together. It's absolutely masterful. People ask me, you know, to rank golf courses. I said, well, there's Pine Valley, and then there's eight blank rungs before you get down here to the Augustas and the Pebble Beaches and the Royal County Downs and all those. It's so amazing. I said, I'm, 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 I, I changed my mind. I am absolutely uh, okay to come. And so he said, well, it's in September. Can you come? And so I went up there, and it was awesome. I got to go to the number one course in the world while living in Utopia, hitting balls at the worst golf course in the entire world, worst to first, to talk about Jesus. Are you serious? Only God's humor, you know, can, can do something like that. So I get there, and the gentleman that called me uh, began to warn me early on about it. He said, there's one gentleman here. He's played in four masters. He's going to be a Walker Cup captain. He's really good. He's one of the finest gentlemen you'll ever meet until he touches his foot on the golf course. And then he loses it, and no one wants to play with him. And uh, he says, he's my best friend in the world, but he's an absolute idiot on the golf course. And um, you're going to play with him Sunday morning. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing the, you know, speaking along the week, and then I'm thinking about, okay, Sunday morning, I got, I got the devotional early in the morning. He's going to be sitting right in front of me. What am I going to talk about? And I, I, in my books and things, we talk about when you going to hit a shot that we call it the neural pathway of performance is you see it so you can feel it and then you trust it or let it go. You see, you feel, and you trust. And so there's a spiritual connection to that. See his face, feel his presence, and trust his love. There's a connection there. But I teach that, but I knew on Sunday morning that he tried that, <laughs> but there's something inside of his heart that wasn't just going to let him see and feel and trust when he was faced with the situation on the golf course. I needed a nuclear, I needed a nuclear weapon. I needed the full thing. And so the Lord led me to a verse of 1 Thessalonians. So I taught on 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, and 18. He sat right in front of me. And it goes like this. Be joyful always. Pray constantly. Be in communion with God. And in all circumstances, this is going to be the big one. In all circumstances, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Have you ever wanted a sermon on the will of God? There it is, right there in three verses. Be joyful always, pray constantly, and in every circumstance, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Whoa. So that's the way I preface this. We're going to talk about the will of God and all this kind of stuff. And man, I'm pouring it on. And so I said, do you get that? JPT, joy, prayer, thanksgiving, JPT. You know, we've been talking about SFT. We're talking about JPT. This is a nuclear, nuclear weapon right here. So everybody's about to leave, and we're going to go out and play on this beautiful day at the number one course in the world. And there's Jim. And uh, Jim, Jim, hang on, hang on. Hey, we get to play together today. He says, I'm so looking forward to it and all that kind of stuff. I said, do you have your ball with you? He said, no, it's in my bag. I'll get it, though. I said, good, I'm going to mark it for you. You want to mark my ball? I said, yeah, I want to mark your ball for you. So uh, he gets the ball, and I said, I said I'm going to mark it in green here. It says, I'm going to put J-P-T. And I want to ask you something today. we got 18 holes together. Look at this place. Beautiful. 18 Rembrandts. We get to play here. Unbelievable. Not many people in the world get to do this. And we get to be together and do this thing. Can you do this for 18 holes? Be joyful. Be talking to God. Just be in prayer. And in all circumstances, no matter what happens on the golf course, give thanks. Yeah, I can do that. Man, we're getting somewhere. 
So we tee off, and he's happy, he's excited, it's beautiful, and he's four under after about six holes. He's doing great. I mean, this guy can play, flat out play. We get to number eight. It's the shortest horse on the hole on the golf course. It's a little west, kind of downhill, and you're hitting at a green that's the size of a coffee table. And uh, we've already hit first. Jim's down there about 75 yards from the green, takes the sandwich back, and as he hits the ball, he, he basically lays the sod over the ball. The ball moves about six feet. There's this big divot just kind of like that. And I'm about 20 feet away from him. I'm looking at him, and you can see it. It's coming up his neck. Mount Vesuvius is just about to explode. He is angry. He is out of control. He's just about to lose it completely. And God took me. My, my feet started moving. What are you doing? Took me right over in front of him, and I stood there, and I looked at him, and he's just going. I said, uh, what are you doing? What do you mean, what am I doing? I go, oh, excuse me. What are you doing? What do you mean? I said, well, look, here's the ball. Do you see what that says? It says JPT. What does that mean? Mm. Mm, joy. <laughs> Prayer. Thanksgiving. I said, you said you were going to do that the whole day. Are you doing it right now? And before he could answer, I said, listen, and this is where we had the conversation. I said, Jim, do you know these men love you? Do you know every guy here thinks you're one of the greatest men in the world? Off the golf course. But this is the place that the enemy comes and tries to steal your heart. And he wins all the time. And I've given you a shot today to beat the enemy. And you said you could do it. you got a choice right now. So you think that shot defines you. You think, you think a bad shot tells the world that you're horrible, that you're a hack, that you can't cut it under pressure, that you can't just play perfect all the time. And it makes you feel horrible about yourself. I can see it and everybody else knows it. you got a chance right now to win. It's your choice. Joy, prayer, ask God to help, and thank him. Thank him. Jim, no one cares. No one cares. These guys love you. They don't care. He took a deep breath. He hit it up about 10 feet, lipped out, made a bogey. The other guys are walking in the next seat boxes. They don't care. They just love the guy. They just don't want to be around him. They don't care. They're always way out in front of him. And I said, Jim, hey, did that change your life? There's 4 billion people in China that didn't care that you made a bogey. I don't care. They don't care. Why do you care so much? Because the enemy, as Kelly said last, year, last night, the enemy sows lies. And he's told you that you're a failure you're a chump, and you can't do it after you hit a shot like that. He agreed. I said, good. Let's keep it going. We go all the way around. He's six under. We get to number 18. president of the club drives up at his cart. I thought, uh-oh, here we go. He gets up there, and he just smokes his drive. It's going. It's 300, 308 yards, and it just looks beautiful. And it just right at the end, it just kind of just curves over into one of the largest bunkers at Pine Valley. And disappears. And he's okay. He puts it in his bag. The rest of us hit about 80 yards short of him. <laughs> we walk down there. We hit our shots. Jim goes over and he gets down in the trap. And we hear this. 
guys, guys, come here, come here, come here. You can put that picture up. And about waist high in the bunker, he says, look, look at this, look at this. About waist high in the bunker, I mean right here in the bunker, buried in the side of the bunker with no shot whatsoever, is his golf ball. Callaway ball. You don't see Callaway there, do you? You don't see the number. You see one thing. JPT. Doc, Doc, look, look, look. Can God talk through a golf ball? <laughs> what do you think, Jim? Yes. And he's just bawling. And we're just looking at him. And he goes, here's what he's saying. I get it. No matter in golf or in life, when I find myself in a, with a buried lie, I will always remember that verse. And I'll apply it. Be joyful always. Be prayerful. I mean, be joyful. Prayerful all. Pray always. And be thankful in all circumstances. Changed his life, guys. He became the Walker Cup captain a few years ago. He was wonderful at that. I play golf with him a lot now. He never, never loses it anymore. But there was a point, there was a moment in his life that he was trapped because he got his validation by a score, by a shot, by a performance. Anybody, anybody in here? How can a game have such an effect on a man's soul that no one wanted to play with one of the nicest men in the world because he was an absolute jerk on the golf course because he hated himself because the enemy told him, you're no good. And your only validation is how you play. Number one, he was trapped. He was trapped by his identity being attached to performance. I go back a couple years later, a few years later, after we made the movie. And I'm there and I'm speaking on Saturday morning. And after I speak, people go into groups and we talk about the topic that morning with the foursome we're going to play with. So that morning, the... Four people that go with me, one's Ken Blanchard's son-in-law and another guy that's been a member here for a while and another guy. And as we're going to the table where we're going to talk, everybody's patting my friend on the back, Dick. They're just patting him, congratulating him, giving him a hug. And I don't know what's going on, but we finally get to our table in our little spot. And I say, Dick, man, what was that all about? He says, it's a great day. I go, why is it a great day? When you've been a member at Pine Valley for 50 years, you don't have to pay dues anymore. <laughs> I turned 75 today. My dad was a member when I was younger, and they, they offered me a membership when I was 25, one of the youngest to ever get one. And now I'm 70, 50 years of walking the fairways at the greatest golf course in the world. I don't have to pay dues anymore. And all of a sudden, one of the greatest sermons I've ever heard in my life is starting to unfold. So we look at each other in that group. He's sitting across the table from me, and there's the little four chairs there. And he said, hey, hey, before we start, this morning you were talking about hearing the voice of God. I don't get it. You always talk about hearing the voice of God. He said, I've been in church all my life. I don't hear the voice of God. What do you mean, the voice of God? Tell me, what do you mean? I go, well, Jesus talked about it. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And the night before he died, maybe one of the most amazing gifts he ever gave mankind, he said to his disciples, I've got to go. So the Holy Spirit, the voice of all truth, the comforter, the counselor, 
may come and live within you and speak to you and walk with you and be in the game with you, not out there somewhere. Isaiah 55, listen, listen to me and I'll feed you the richest of fare. And then that really cool verse we started the movie with in Isaiah, it says, whether you, whether you turn to the left or the right in life, you'll hear a voice behind you telling you which way to walk. Walk that way. Yeah, God speaks. And I spoke that to him and I said, I said, would you like to hear him? He said, yeah. And here's the deal. I want you guys to understand this. This is clear. He's been in church his whole life, and basically he said, I know Jesus. I know who he is. I said, the deal is, you cannot hear the voice of God outside of what you read right here. You, and you can't even interpret this, really, until you do something. And that is, in your heart, you make him, give him your life. Surrender. Make him the Lord of your life. Have you ever made him the Lord of your life? Because when you make him the Lord of your life, when you actually say, Lord, I've been doing this a long time and I'm not great at it. Would you please come in, invade my life, have the Holy Spirit inside of me, speak to me, lead me, talk to me, teach me. I want that. That's called lordship. I said, that's when it all changes. Have you ever done that? No. Now, the two guys here hadn't either, and their eyes are huge. We're at Pine Valley, and we're talking about this at Pine Valley. Can you really do that? Of course we can. And I said, would you like to do that right now? And he goes, I'd love to do that right now. I reached out and grabbed his hand. I said, just pray. Lord, I've been knowing about you, but really running my own life for 75 years. He said that. I said, I'd like for you to be the Lord of my life. Come in. Invade my life. Bring the Holy Spirit. So that I might hear your voice. He said that. Forgive me for not doing this earlier. He said that. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And he looked at me like no man's ever looked at me before. Because he was invaded at that moment by God. In a way he had never, never had before. He didn't just know about Jesus. Jesus was now inside of him. That great promise the night before Jesus was betrayed and killed came true for him. Oh, this sermon. This sermon is getting big. That takes a while. We talk just mostly about that for the next few minutes. And then everybody comes together. There's a spokesman from every group that gets up and says, this is what we talked about in our group. Kind of like you do at the end of the night. They get to our group. I'm just loving this. Who's going to speak for your group? Not you, Dr. Cook, because you spoke already. Well, no, I think I'm going to speak. No, you can't do that. Yeah, I am. And I get up there and I go, hey, guys, look outside. And the windows were open. I looked outside. It was a fall day, yellow leaves, orange, beautiful red, the green grass as green as ever before, no wind, 72 degrees. We're at Pine Valley. These guys get to play Pine Valley. Some of them, most of them, about 90% of them for the first time in their life. And they've already defined it as heaven on earth, you see. And not only was it heaven on earth, it was the perfect day of all days to play this game. I said, look out there, guys, what do you see? Oh, it's perfect, man. <laughs> we can't wait. I said, is it, is it heaven on earth? Yeah, it's heaven on earth. I said, really? 
is this your bucket list golf course to play? Yes. I said, um, Dick, come here. Here's the best sermon I ever heard about to happen. I said, Dick, what's special about today? Before we met, he goes, I said, what's special? He goes, hey, guys, I've been a member here for 50 years. I don't have to pay dues anymore. I said, oh, Dick, Dick, you have walked the fairways of Pine Valley. These guys all want to do it. It's like if I could just do it once in my life. They're all here. They're so excited. It's the perfect day. You've done it for 50 years. No one's ever done that. And I looked at him. I said, is this really heaven? Did that fulfill your soul? No, sir. Now you could hear a pin drop. I got him. He's got him. (laughs) I said, what does or what did fulfill your soul? And he pointed at the table we were at. He said, men, I did something. I asked Jesus to be Lord. I've never done that in my life. I've been to church, but I never did that. (laughs) And everything's changed. And he's crying. Everything's changed. Golfing here for 50 years didn't do it. And it's not going to do it for you today. Jesus. Jesus did it. You know what? He was trapped. His validation was membership. He he belonged to something very exclusive. It didn't do it for him. It didn't fulfill him. And finally, there's a guy that was two years away from qualifying for the Champions Tour. His name was Jim. And I'm doing a PGA workshop up in the PGA Northwest for their section. And he's one of the guys there that's teaching the teachers. And I come in to do the mental game. So I'm teaching the psychology of putting. And they put Jim with me. They always put like a good teacher with me to sort of give credibility for the people that don't believe in sports psychology or whatever. And we're out there. And I teach this for an hour. and Had a great time. And they all leave. It's like we're going to have a 30-minute break. And as they all left, Jim's sitting there. And he's going... They're laughing. Who's laughing? They're laughing. The the teachers that just left here, the the golf professionals, yeah, they're laughing. Why are they laughing? Because they know I'm the worst putter in the Northwest PGA section. But I'm still one of the best players. If I could just putt, I would be great. I could win it all. And I want to be on the Champions Tour in two years, and I want to putt better. Do you have any secrets? (laughs) I said, Jim, I just talked for an hour on the psychology of putting. I know, I know, I know. I got that. I got that. You have any secrets that they don't know? And I thought about it for a minute, and we have some time there. And I said, okay, Jim, here's what we're going to do. You really want to do this? He said, yep. I said, grab your putter, grab a ball. I said, "Uh, who is the greatest putter you've ever seen In fact, who is the greatest putter you've ever seen? If you could be them and you could step into their body, who would it be? And Curtis Strange had just won two U.S. Opens in a row. And I heard someone say Ben Crenshaw. He's just a little Ben Crenshaw. I mean, they're just the same putter, same thing. I mean, the rhythm, just the stroke. Oh, my gosh. 
He said, Curtis Strange. I said, okay. Here's what I'm going to do. This was kind of foreshadowing. I had no idea this would ever happen. I'm a movie producer. And we've got a script about the life of Curtis Strange. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to audition for the part for the next 15 minutes. That's the stupidest thing. Nope. It's a secret you're asking about. I said, if you want to do it, are you going to not do it? All right, I'll do it. Well, not much changed except like the grip pressure and the rhythm. It's still him, but it was like there was a transformation from this to, to that. The third putt was, there were all these putts were like 20 feet. The third one went in. He goes, that was luck. I said, no, you got to stay in character. You're not going to get this. And I mean, that ball started rolling in over in. And every putt was right to the cup, right up by the cup. They didn't all go in, but they were rolling great. And I just let him go. Stay in character. Stay in character. Stay in character. And he got around. I said, how was that? You know what he said? I hadn't putted like that since I was a kid. I hadn't putted like that since I was a kid. You know, when you're a kid, you don't hear all those other people's voices. When you're a kid, you just let it go. When you're a kid, there's, this, there's not all this subconscious garbage going on in your head. It hadn't built up yet. There's no scars in there. You're just, hey, it's 60 feet over there. Let's see if we can get it the closest. And you just let it rip, and you just... Play and you let this talent that's inside just come out and you learn. I hadn't putted like that since I was a kid. He's looking at me dumbfounded. I said, All right, let me ask you this. Was that you or Curtis Strange that just putted? He took a minute to answer the question. He said, It was me, wasn't it? I said, Yeah. I said, But you did something. You took the mask of Jim off. See, that mask was built by the opinions of other people that matter to you and some situational instances in your life where you may have failed and missed a four-footer or something and everybody's kind of... (laughs) And you took that off and you set it down. And then you put another mask on and you acted. All of life is acting. (laughs) Who are you going to be? What are you going to say? How are you going to... um, respond to situations. I said, what you did is you put a different mask on and it gave you permission just to play the game. Changed his life. Come back next year. He, he meets me at the airport. They send him to pick me up. We're going to do this thing again. He comes up. I said, Jim, how you doing? Jim, my name's Curtis. <laughs> I'm Curtis Strange to you. I said, how are you doing? He said, I had the best year of my life of golf. I can putt again. I've won all the money. These guys are sick of me. Next year, this fall, late this fall, I get to try to qualify for the Champions Tour. So here he is, 3,000 people trying to qualify for the Champions Tour, and they give eight spots. That's a real good odds, isn't it? He's in the eighth spot, teeing off on number 18, the deal's sealed. If he pars it, he's in. He's on the Champions Tour. Reaches the goal of a lifetime. 
His playing partner, who's already in pretty much, unless he quadrupled bogeys the hole, looks at Jim and said, hey, just stay within yourself. And Jim looked at him and said, if you knew what was going on in there, you wouldn't say that. <laughs> he hits a nice drive, and he pulls his shot into the green just a little bit. Now he's in a bunker. Got to get it up and down for par. He's got these great hands. That's why I knew he could be a good putter. He knocks it up there four feet. <laughs> four feet. This is, the, this is the gut check range. This is the choke range. This is everybody's horrible nightmare putt, you know? He's got four feet. If he makes it, he's on the champion's tour. If he misses it, sudden death with like 10 guys. It's a perfect scenario. And Curtis Strange gets up there and he knocks it in the hole and he makes it on the champion's tour. His validation was the opinions of others. And their voice got way bigger than his. We got one that's validating his life by a score. We got one validating himself by membership. We got one validating himself by the opinions of others. And there's probably some in here that are validating themselves by a school, a degree, a possession like a car or a plane, a wife, their children, what they're doing, how successful, the position they hold, their intellect, your USGA handicap index. <laughs> hey, we know this stuff, don't we? We're in there somewhere. It's hard. Life is no good when you validate yourself by these things because you have no control. And it's unfulfilling. And it hurts. Because the enemy is the father of lies. And he's weaseled his way in there through these things saying, this is what's important. This is what defines a human being. This is what a real man is defined by. So here's the story that changed my life. I went hunting for quail in Kansas many years ago with a guy that has a great bird dog. His dog's name was Susie. And I love quail hunting because I love watching the master and the dog work together. It's so beautiful, and I don't care if we get any quail. I just love that relationship. I love watching that. And it's the first day of hunting season this particular year. We're in Alta Vista, Kansas, and there's a light snow that has covered this stubble field that we're about to hunt in. 600, I mean, uh, whatever, uh, 660 acres, like a mile by a mile. And you walk through there, and the dog just goes out. And, I mean, we let Susie out of that uh, crate, and she's just like, she's been shivering. She's so excited about hunting. Boom, she pops out of there. Nine months she's thought about doing what she was bred to do. Being in a backyard, <laughs> no quail. And finally she gets to do it, and she's out there. And we start hunting. And she's going back and forth about 20 or 30 yards, just the perfect distance, you know, for a dog and the master. And he's talking to her, and she's in earshot range. And then she starts moving out to about 40 or 50 yards and almost gets out of earshot. And he calls really loud and gets her to come back in, looks at her in the eye, and, you know, and they do the dog talk thing. And she goes back to 20 or 30, then out to 40, then boom, she breaks command. She's 70, 80, 100 yards out there. We're watching her. And she goes all the way to the end of the field. We're about 300 yards away, and we can see it. And there's, there's woods back there. And she stops, and she goes on point into the woods. And John goes, 
she's got a rabbit trail or a deer. She's got something going on. It's just, I'm sorry, David. It's just the first day of the season. She's a little, she's a little out, of, out of character. And then she bolts. She breaks her point and runs into the woods. And then we hear it. And it's a sound like you never want to hear in your life. It's this blood-curdling, squealing, yelping, barking sound of a dog in absolute agony and pain. And just gets louder and worse. And we take off running into the woods. And he goes, I don't know what's going on. And we run into the woods. And there's this ham four feet in the air on a rope swinging back and forth. And Susie is caught in a trap under the hams, a coyote trap. And it's one of those traps, the more you move, the tighter it gets. And she's just about to rip her leg off. And just squealing, doesn't even know that we're there, just yelping and yelling and everything. And John drops his shotgun. I'm watching this thing, and I see this happen. Her paw's like this, and John crams his hand into the trap as hard as he can, and her paw comes out. And my friend is now trapped. And it's an old, rusty trap. And the mechanisms are unusual. I understand traps for the most part, but this was, this was crazy trap. And Susie was just holding her arm like this and looking at him. Just looking like, are you serious? I was in pain, but I'm not now. And she's just looking because he's in pain. He's in pain. That trap is around his hand. His hand is turning blue. It's bleeding. And every time he moves, he, ah, it's getting tighter. I get my buck knife out and I try to, I try to bend it open. It ain't happening. The ground is really soft, and I finally found the mechanism. We push it down. It's like sand and mud. It just goes straight down the ground, and every movement hurts so bad. And he's just a big guy, and he's just hurting so bad. Finally, I got a log and rolled it over and put it on there and pushed with all my weight, and it started to open, and he pulls his hand out, snaps closed. And he's sitting there. He's just like absolute pain, that dog just staring. He says, Dave, I think it's broken. We need to go. We got a mile back to that car through that stubble field. He takes off walking, and Susie's nose never left his knee. Just like she's kind of limping, and she's looking up in absolute awe of what he just did for her. And he's holding his hand, and he's walking, and he's in pain, and he's walking across that field. And I'm about 10, 10 feet behind with the two shotguns, and I look, and God says, do you see? Do you see the parable that I'm giving you right now? And I began to see it, and it began to unfold for me. The dog got caught in a trap. It's like the trap of validation we've been talking about. We get trapped in the wrong identity and the worth, and our whole life and, I, and, and purpose is based on this thing that goes up and down, and it's just hard life. And then we go for the wrong thing. We go for the moldy ham. When God created us to be quail hunters. <laughs> she was frustrated because she didn't get any quail. And so the next best thing she thought was that moldy ham. And she went for it. And she got stuck in that trap. And the pain was awful. And it hurt so bad. And in her brain, as in many men, maybe some in this room, she thought to herself, 
this is as good as it's going to get. I'm stuck. And I'm looking up at a ham that I shouldn't have gone for. And the shame and the guilt just comes in. And the pain is there and it's real. And so what do we do? What do men do? They begin to medicate the pain. And the shame and the guilt. And you know how they do it, how we do it. There's pornography, there's workaholism, there's perfectionism, there's, there's all kinds of addictions. And some men end up there. That's why we have this thing. To bring men and say, hey, there's something more than the trap that the enemy has lied to you about. And so as I was watching and that was unfolding to me, I realized something that Susie called out. She could have just been real quiet and just said, I don't want anybody to see this. I don't want anybody to know this. And that's what happens when shame and guilt grabs a man. We'll just deal with it. And we just hang out in pain for the rest of our life. And it ruins all the relationships and things around us and the adventure with God. But she called out. And John sought her. The Bible says that God seeks those who call him. And John ran. The first thing is God will come when you call. He seeks us. And number two, as John ran in and dropped his shotgun and he saw the pain that his dog was in, he replaced himself in the trap. And Susie was free and he took the trap upon himself. And God said, that's what Jesus did for you, David. He did that on the cross. See, we were all trapped by sin. And Jesus came for the salvation of us all. And to understand that and to make him Lord and understand the significance of the blood that he shed for us on the cross, he took the trap of sin upon himself so that we might be free. That's, that's what happened. And you know what Susie's response was? Awe, wonder, amazement, love, because we walked right back through that field. And she didn't sniff for birds. She didn't do what she was trained to do. All she could do was just keep her nose right next to his knee. Because her relationship with her master just changed. She realized that he sacrificed himself for her. And then the third thing. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I wondered, would Susie ever hunt again? Because she pretty much just invalidated herself. Stubborn. Strong-willed, went after the wrong thing, stupid, we might say. She had a lot of, we had a lot of labels you could have put around that dog at that point. And two weeks later, we hunted with Susie again because John forgave that dog. <laughs> and that's that final part, right? God forgives us. And then he goes and puts himself in the trap to prove his, that he forgives us. And he says, I want you to live free. I want you to live free. Psalms 25 says this, rescue me, Father God. You free my feet from every trap. Psalm 107 says, then we cried out, cried out and the Lord, Lord, help us and rescue us. And it says he did. And for God so loved the world those of us that were trapped in the world, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish in the trap, 
but have everlasting life. Susie hunted really well after that. Susie never left earshot. In fact, about every 10 minutes, Susie ran back to the master with this big old smile on her face and just looked at him just to acknowledge that she loved him and that she was doing a good job. And he rubbed her head and she'd go back out. I talked to him two weeks ago for the first time in about 38 years. And I told him that I'd be sharing this story with you guys. And I share it a lot. And he was amazed at it. I said, John, it's the greatest sermon I ever saw. It changed my life. And you know what he said? He said, I've had five hunting dogs. None of them can hold a candle to Susie after the trap incident. I went on a retreat one time like this up to Lake Michigan. And the leader started it out by saying, what's your view of God? Honestly, he said, what's your view of God? And I realized real quickly that I had a Marine Corps dad and I kind of got God and him mixed up a little bit, you know. I had a lot of harsh coaches like we all did growing up in Texas. I got him mixed up in that a little bit because these were the most important men in my life. He said, uh, you can't think about people. He says, here's what we're going to do. For the next two hours, I want you to go out and sit on the dune next to Lake Michigan and I want you to take the word of God and I want you to look it up. I want you to look at all the verses you've underlined and all the, all your th- the things that God, wherever God leads you in the Bible. I want you to look at them. I want you to I want you to write a paragraph, one paragraph about who God is, so that you can know who you are. Basically, what he was doing was a was a way of teaching us where our validation comes from, who it comes from, and who we really are. That was so important to me. So I went out there and I began to look. And he said, write your paragraph. In 1998, I wrote a paragraph. I came back. It took about 25 verses. And I just rewrote them in this paragraph. And this is what I'm going to end with tonight. This is where my validation comes from. I hope this is where your validation comes from and who you see God to be. And I, I encourage you to take your, your Bible and dive deep in it. And look at who God is so that you can know who you are. God, out of the dust you formed me and breathed life into my nostrils. Although I cannot clearly see you with my earthly eyes, my spirit reveals that you hold me by my right hand at all time. Your voice within me constantly tells me to turn to the left or the right, for you are always with me. You are my shepherd and you hold me like a lamb close to your heart. Your love for me is greater than the heavens, and you call me your child, loving me infinitely more than any human can. You, the creator of the universe, have an intimate and personal relationship with me. You're always by my side. My strength and my confidence come from you, for you are the source of my very being, like the vine is to the branches. Through Jesus, you've given me life eternal and have already prepared a place for me so awesome and wonderful that the thoughts I create about it pale in comparison to its reality. In this world, you're my fortress, you're my stronghold, as you encamp your angels around me. You mold me, and you give me a cause that will be accomplished by your power and your grace. 
you clearly are the CEO of this adventure called my life. Isaiah 40, Psalm 34, 39, 44, 108, 73, Matthew 15, Luke 15, John 1, 14, 15, 16, 1 John 1, Genesis 2, 7. How can a game have such an effect on our soul? It's only one way. We listen to the lies of the enemy and we have a false view of God and who he says we are. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. Thank you, Randy.